This is the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the bullwhip crack like this. Let's begin now. Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. This way! Fasten your seatbelt. There might be some tablets. You've taken your chances, made your mistakes, and now a final triumph. Indiana Jones. A few times in my life I've seen things. I'm been tortured with voodoo. I've been shot nine times. Including once by your father. Ah, sorry. But I've been looking for this all my life. Welcome to the final chapter of our Reading of the Lost Ark series, a.k.a. a crossover between the Projection Booth and the Culture Cast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike White, though you may know me as Lawrence Caston. Joining me, of course, is Mr. George Lucas himself, a.k.a. Chris Stashew. It's like poetry. It rhymes. And, of course, Steven Spielberg, a.k.a. Andrew Rausch. Hey, what's up? This is Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's, it's like, like he's he was in the room. In the room. We are wrapping things up with the discussion of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. This film has all of these folks credited as writers. Jez and John Butterworth, David Kep, and James Mangold, who also directed the film. Mangold has a real knack for looking at older characters at the end of the run, as he's almost doing for Indiana Jones what he did for Logan. This film tells the tale of Indiana Jones finding an artifact that may change the course of history, but that's kind of always his thing. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back. Don't be like the jackass who posted spoilers on my Twitter feed the day the movie opened. So let's go ahead and start at the beginning and work our way through this thing. And we've got our extended 
James Bond type opening with the de-aged Harrison Ford. And Chris, I, I think you're a big fan of the de-aging process. If you want to make your movie feel like a Marvel movie, there's a really easy way to do it. Step one, de-age an actor. In this case, Harrison Ford, because, you know, thankfully, you know, we just watched Blade Runner 2049, no de-aging there. The reluctance of Harrison Ford to come back is felt not only in the role, but also in his appearance. Here, I'm assuming he was reluctant to come back, maybe not. He seems to be enjoying himself on this kind of last hurrah with Indiana Jones, but, you know, I we kind of knew it was coming. There had been whispers of like there was someone wearing an indiana jones mask riding a motorcycle at one point like a young harrison ford mask and then you know again like we've seen this technology in the marvel movies so much now that it's kind of commonplace i mean the grand moff tarkin thing in rogue one being another case but that's also a disney thing it's just never been this prolonged and pronounced and and again it felt like the character that Malcolm McDowell plays in the Clockwork Orange, it's like holding my eyes open because with Grand Moff Tarkin, you can look away and it's like a minute. With this, it's like, what am I going to do? Go get a bucket of popcorn for 30 fucking minutes? Like, again, the action and everything else aside, just I didn't want to look at it because it's not, it's varying degrees of quality, but most of it is below what I would consider to be worth showing, at least for 25 minutes. The Indiana Jones de-aging is ghoulish, and and I think an affront to common sense. And look, I understand why they did it. I understand why they did it the way that they did it, frankly, because, hey, if you're going to do it, just fucking full board. Don't do the Justice League shit where it's like half dozen and bullshit. Just they went for it. They show it. It's the first time we see Harrison Ford in this movie. He's de-aged. The shot that they show in the trailer is the best shot in the movie, because beyond that, it's just it's varying degrees of horrifying. And we have to watch it for 20 minutes, at least in the James Bond movie. It's 15 minutes of a backstory of a character who we're being forced to care about. And then 15 to 20 minutes or about 15 minutes of actual Daniel Craig being actual James Bond. While you can de-age Harrison Ford's face, you cannot de-age his voice, and you cannot de-age the way that he holds himself. And anytime they show Indiana Jones from any sort of long distance, it's clearly an old guy doing and that with, with an older voice, and then they de-age his face, and he looks like he has a giant head. So my ranting and raving aside, boy, what an opening. I actually didn't mind the de-aging all the time. There were a few times where I was like, oh, looks kind of decent here, but that's very rare that he looks decent. When they do things like shine the light on his face, looks really bad when he's doing a lot of real quick motion on the uh, motorcycle stuff, it looks really bad. But there are times where I'm like, okay, this looks all right, but it's more just like an approximation of Harrison Ford rather than oh, I believe that this is young Indiana Jones. I believe that this is the guy that we grew up with who looked this way in, you know, the Raiders took place in what, 36? This would have been 44 44 that we're going here and didn't look good. I thought it was very funny that they brought up the Spear of Longinus, aka the Spear of Destiny, since we were talking when we read the story transcripts that that was the MacGuffin for before they came up with the arc, that that's what 
George and Phil Kaufman were talking about, and they're like, oh, yeah, Spear of Destiny. And it kind of has the same thing here, where it's, oh, if Hitler gets his hands on this, he's going to win the war. This is going to be great. And then that they prove that it's a fake within the first 15 minutes, if not sooner. I thought that was kind of a neat thing, but I thought it was a nice little nod to the fans. So I'm going to be the odd man out here. It wasn't as bad as I thought it could have been. You know, there were times I thought it looked really good. The eyes are, that's the bad part. The eyes always look dead, no matter, but they look funky. But, uh, you know, I thought it was better used than the Irishman. It was one of the people that didn't hate the Irishman, but they they still walked around like old people. I thought that this was one thing that they did better by using, you know, in the, in the action scenes, using a body double at a distance and not having an 81-year-old man hobbling around on top of a speeding train. I don't know. I didn't hate it. It was a lot more than I had expected. I mean, it was a lot. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't one of the part, parts of the movie that I hated the most. And I know a lot of people do. But, hey, I'm fucking Steven Spielberg. You know, I can do what I want. And uh, it, didn't, it didn't bother me that much. It's like a Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder thing here. Like, I'm not right. breaking character until we're fucking I'm not breaking character. This. That's right. <laughs> you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned that they used a body double. There are a couple shots where they clearly didn't. And it's old Harrison Ford. And you mentioned the body double. And the voice is the other thing. Like, it is him doing old man Indiana Jones in a young body like Disney hire somebody to help with voice modulation or get an impersonator or something. Cause if you're trying to sell 44, you're not successful in that regard. And I put in all this other effort to do it. It seems kind of strange to just be like, well, nobody can do Indy's voice other than Harrison. And it's like, other than all the times in video games that they did it, like, I don't know. Like it feels like a video game enough. Why not just go whole hog? It seems a little strange to me. What was it like working with young Harrison Ford? Oh my gosh. Well, the thing is he walked on. George likes to cast people that are so close to what he wants. He doesn't have to really get in there and give you a lot of direction. Yeah. And Harrison had a really firm grasp of like the overview. I think he'd make a really good director if he weren't so lazy. <laughs> For instance, we were doing the scene where it was right after we got out of the trash compactor. We hadn't filmed that scene yet. And I'm looking in continuity and I said, well, wait a second. This is right after we got out of the trash compactor. Shouldn't my hair be all wet and matted with schmutz all through it? And he turns to me and says, hey, kid, it ain't that kind of movie. If people are looking at your hair, we're all in big trouble. (laughs) This shit with this CGI has got to stop because it doesn't look good enough. I couldn't believe that this is a fucking $300 million movie because like there's no amount of this that will make like if this is the amount that you even with the $300 million budget and this is how it looks, you can't fucking do this then do something else. Just write a different opening. Introduce us to the fucking Phoebe Waller bridge character in the opening of the movie. Subvert our expectations completely. Don't force us to watch this fucking weird chat gpt third act or first act of last crusade all over again like it's just i don't know maybe it just pisses me off more than other people but it just it felt like disney just going look at this thing we can do and it's like not as impressive as it seems like i mean it's like give it another i was gonna say 10 years but give it five years i mean that we've seen the progression since that really awful well, the, the worst, I think, is still Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia in Rogue One. And then it just it gets a little bit better with Luke Skywalker. The first time we see him in 
the Mandalorian and then better the second time we see him in the Mandalorian. But here we are now and it's not much better. It's really, yeah. And yeah, there's got to be a way to de-age the voice a little bit as well. And I'm sure that you could do that. What's even more kind of not upsetting, but again, it just makes it stand out even more is when he interacts with other actors, real living actors like the fantastic Toby Jones, who's in this movie for a couple minutes and and Thomas Kreishman, who's also in this movie for a couple minutes. Like they're both fantastic actors. And then when they have to interact with this like weird homunculus monster of an Indiana Jones, it just I can't stress enough to, I guess, other people like myself out there, like, I don't think that this is going to stick around, thankfully. I think that we're coming to a logical point where this is either going to have to get better and then we can do it, or we've got to stop doing it until it gets better. Because I haven't seen anybody go, well, this is a good part of the movie that I really like. Because everybody has to say, other than the fact that he looks weird and he's got this giant head, taking all that aside, the action's fine. But to be honest with you, I, I, the action in this movie was not very compelling. None of it seemed to be, even the intro, which is a shame. Like, Indiana Jones, you're here for the character and the interactions and kind of the, the, the puzzles, and not the puzzles, but kind of the world of archaeology, and there for the action. And, and this movie, like, from the start, it just feels very Marvel, very Marvel-esque. And Indiana Jones's action has never been Marvel. Even in the fourth movie, it wasn't. And I don't know if they de-age Mads Mikkelsen, but if they did, it wasn't very pronounced. And Mads Mikkelsen, not as old as Harrison Ford. But he almost looked like the same fucking guy. He almost looked like the same fucking guy, but with shitty, shitty blonde hair. Like, that was, I don't know. The The real problem for me, and I know I'm jumping ahead, is he gets, I would think he gets half of his ca- head caved in by right. that thing. How does he, uh, how does he not have a... How does he not a have scar. a giant scar? Just a, like just I thought, even there's a, a long scar. when we first see him, and they're talking to him when he comes back, right? Like there's a long scene where he's got his head turned, and I thought he's going to turn, and we're going to see this, you know, crazy scar, like you know, the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or there's going to be something, you know, and it's nothing. It was just he just looked like the same fucking guy. Yeah, he's Mads Mikkelsen with gray hair and a few wrinkles. And yeah, same glasses, same everything. He's a Superman. You know, they talked about. The- Hitler wanted the Nazi Superman. Maybe he was one of them. I don't know, but uh, it was weird. He had the super soldier serum. That's why he recovered so quickly. I have to say the dial of destiny, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek antikythera mechanism, I guess. That's really strange because it's a real thing. Whereas I, I know I have at least two atheists on this call. So the spear of Longinus, who knows if that was really a thing? Who knows if Jesus was a real person? All this kind of stuff. But like, you know, all the mythology that goes along with the spear, all the stuff that goes along with the ark, with the the, the cup, you know, the uh, the Holy Grail, Shankara stones, nobody other than Molaram, nobody really wanted those for much of anything. And then Molaram, what's he want? He's just like, oh, when we get all these, we have power. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, this is a real item we're playing with real history here which is just an odd turn for indiana jones because so many of his adventures mix science with with mythology and now it's like pure science but then taking the pure science of the dial and making that into a mythological thing with time travel 
does this movie suffer from not being directed by Steven Spielberg? Well, I think Steven would say yes. Of course it would. God damn it. Of course it would. <laughs> okay. I'm not addressing you, Andy, as Steven Spielberg, but you as as Andy. I mean, is does this movie suffer from not having the Spielbergian touch to it? I don't know. I don't know if he's got that same touch now. I think he does really good with big, grandiose movies now. But I don't know if an action movie is really going to be his forte anymore. I don't know. I don't know if it would have made a difference. For me, so much of the movie is about the script. And, you know, obviously we talked for six hours about the script when it came to Raiders and just all that tinkering, all the stuff that went into it, all the things that were good, all the things that were bad, all the things that got pulled out into other things. And there's, you know, of course, as I'm watching this movie, I keep thinking about our script conversation and just like looking for little things that they might have still kind of kept alive after all these years. Yeah, I don't know if it really would have mattered had it been Steven Spielberg in the director's chair or if it would have been better if it was Lawrence Kasdan behind the typewriter. The one thing that I think might have been different, though, was the editing, because it felt like this film, even though it wasn't like super flabby, I felt like there was some flab to it. And I can't say specifically it was just in the second half. And I don't want to go into that, but it's just just yet. But didn't feel streamlined enough. There was a point later on in the movie where you know, I'd have been looking at my watch if I'd have had one. I mean, it wasn't bad. It didn't feel long, but it just, and even though we were getting a lot of action, I can't say what it was, but it felt draggy a little in the, in the final third. So if I had been there, if Steven Spielberg had been there, I think I'd have had a little more control in the editing bay and would have been smoother. Well, and it wasn't Michael Kahn. It was three editors. It was Andrew Buckland, Michael McCuster, and Dick Westervelt, three editors for this. I think the problem was not enough editors and not enough screenwriters. You know what I mean? Like, and also why didn't we have nine directors? You know, if we're going to have nine people at every other job, why not nine directors? We could have had like a big committee of fucking we could directors. Have had Spielberg and Mangold and Lucas, all of them. All it could all, we could have all been there. Yeah. And Frank Marshall could have come on in and, you know, done his, you know, arachnophobia thing. We could have had it. Pull out a Ouija board and get Bogdanovich on the horn. I mean, oh, we, right. we could have, the spiritual stylings of Peter Bogdanovich. Right. We could have made it just like What's Up, Doc, or Last Picture Show. It would be great. You know, one thing that bothers me, if it's okay to throw this in there real quick, we were talking about the train scene, and that's where the de-aging. Do you know what I'm really, really sick of? And it was fun once upon a time, and maybe it would have been fun once in this movie. But the thing where he's ever on, like, some speeding train, speeding car, speeding fucking anything, and his head is being held off. And then, oh my God, there's a big thing coming at his face. And then he moves his head. And we never think Indiana Jones is going to lose his head. It's never a real fear. But they did it, I think, about four times in this movie. Like that is fucking overkill. Well, it's between that and putting his head in a bag. You know, his head is in a bag at least twice, if not three times in this movie. Well, maybe they could have done that instead of the de-aging. Then you wouldn't have the complaints. He could have just had a bag on his head for 20 minutes. Damn. I can't see fucking shit out of this thing. I just made mine worse. Anybody bring any extra bags? No. Nobody brought an extra bag. I'm just asking. With the thing with the the motorcycle and the train, I was hoping they were going to do a super cop thing and have him shoot the motorcycle onto the train. It's like we get so close to having big stunts in here, but then we don't. It's like we're 
in the age where we have seen so many of these spectacular stunts, whether they're done for real, like a Jackie Chan would do, or whether they're completely CGI. And I would say all of the stunts in here seem like they're very CGI, which is a little sad, you know? And I will be honest, I kind of got fatigue from some of the action films because it was... I kind of was not a fan of the action in this movie. Well, it seemed like overkill when it was happening. The chase scene went on and on and on, and then on some more, and then on and on. Like, they'd take a corner, zoom, zoom, in the little cart and shit. And then I felt like that was never going to end. And when I was watching John Wick 4, and he kept going up the fucking steps and back down and up, I thought that was going to end in this way. I mean, it was okay. It was workable. But this shit just kept going. And I thought... The rest of this movie, like the next hour is just going to be them driving around in this fucking car, going down streets and little alleys. Thankfully, that wasn't the case. It was only like a quarter of the next hour, but. I would have watched that movie. Just them driving in a circle. And they just make a loop of that 15 minutes and it just. (laughs) Some Keystone cop shit. I'd watch. Right. (laughs) I mean, between the chase in New York with the horse versus the motorcycle in the car and then the tuk tuk chase. I was just, I was chased out. I was like, okay, in one he's chasing and the other he's being chased. I'm just like, okay, enough. And by the way, going back to that train uh, fight, I kept thinking of Top Secret when the Nazi comes out of the smoke of the train and he's there and he's ready to fight Indiana Jones and there's a bridge that comes. I was just hoping that he would stand there and the bridge would collapse underneath, you know, like would break around him. Right. <laughs> It would have been more compelling than what we got because the original three Indiana Jones movies are of a piece. They are their own thing. And I think I think that these two movies have more or less confirmed that those movies, one was obviously lightning in the bottle. Two is my favorite and three is the favorite of many. And it is the third one is very different than the first and the second is very different than the third. But they all feel of a piece. Four does not feel of a piece. It feels like its own thing. And five really feels like its own thing. And this opening is is it sets that tone because it, it just lets you know, like, A, it's not going to be what you think. It's going to be like a a flashback thing that everything does now anymore, where it's like, we're going to show you this thing that you didn't know about. We're going to retcon. It's kind of a retcon. It's a very lazy retcon, but it's a retcon nonetheless, because again, oh, now he had a goddaughter that's never been mentioned in all these four movies. (laughs) Wouldn't be convenient if he had a son, and we'll talk about that. But it sets the tone in a way that the openings of the other movies kind of did as well for their respective movies. I just think the tone of this movie is check your expectations at the door. This is not your mom and dad's Indiana Jones movie. This is very different. This, in a lot of ways, this is kind of what Ryan Johnson was trying to do with that Star Wars movie. And he varying degrees of success based on the person. But this in the very same way feels like I want to do my own thing that's not Spielberg with a character that is in the kind of pop culture pantheon. And Mangold does his own thing, that is for sure. Get me Steven Spielberg. He's unavailable. Then get me his non-union Mexican equivalent. Listen, Senior Spielbergo, I want you to do for me what Spielberg did for Oscar Schindler. For me, the tonal stuff really becomes a challenge. It, it really changes tone when we move to August of 69 and we get 
the Beatles music. We get him interacting with the hippies. We see the shithole apartment that he's living in. We get to see the picture of Marion, the divorce decree that we have going. So we're introduced to the there's trouble in paradise type of thing. And then him going in. And of course, he has to be lecturing about Archimedes on that particular day. So yay us. So here's... <sighs> oh my gosh. Yeah, we are just putting in this exposition right here. It happens to also be moon landing day. We have to go right for all of the iconic shit. And they, and what are the odds of any of this, right? And I know it's, you know, I mean, the last movie had UFOs in it, so who gives a shit? And this one has time travel. So I know we're not going for realism, but it just also happens to be the moon travel day. And the music that's loud that he's hearing is the Beatles. It just has to be something that's so iconic that we hear today and not one of the 800 groups they were listening to in 1969 that we no longer hear today. And it's just, or even the thing, the little, little shit, like, where he, the picture of Marion is on the fridge, and this is the first day forever that he puts this thing on it, or does he do that every fucking day? I don't know, but it's, it just seems so convenient. And maybe this is a ridiculous bitch, but it's just, I hate that. That feels lazy to me. Even the thing with his retirement party that happens at this school. This was the craziest day. Everything happened. And then how does he not notice, by the way, that his goddaughter is sitting there in his last lecture? She talks, he talks to her, but he doesn't know who she is and he doesn't notice she's not one of his students. Nor does he notice the African-American lady that's sitting right next to her, who is, is she the first African-American woman that we've gotten in all of these movies? And she's an African-American Nazi? No, no, she's CIA. She is... Yeah, the whole... But she was working for the Nazi guy, right? right yeah, like, the whole thing is the CIA... And nothing against her and plenty against Nazis, but it just seems like somebody the Nazi would not have really dug working around because they weren't real big on women or African-Americans or basically anyone that wasn't blonde-haired, blue-eyed or an asshole that wasn't an asshole. I mean, the whole thing with the CIA working with former Nazis, it is very Project Paperclip, and you know, they, they don't mention the Jet Propulsion Lab, but the whole idea of we're going to get all of these Nazi scientists, and it was ironic that I saw a trailer for Oppenheimer before this. I was like, we're going to get all these Nazi scientists to come on over here, help us out with our stuff, and yes, help put people on the moon. And Mads Mikkelsen is one of those guys. Somehow he turned from archaeology into rocket scientists, I suppose, or maybe he was some Werner von Braun type person over in Nazi Germany. And for me, you know, you're mentioning how Nazis wouldn't like having a woman, uh, African-American woman around. The only time that Mads Mikkelsen comes off as a dick is when he is confronted with the African-American gentleman who brings in his lunch or his breakfast and he starts questioning, like, where did you come from? No, I really mean your people. And he's just kind of being a real asshole about stuff. But for the rest of the movie, I'm like, I'd rather hang out with Mads Mikkelsen than I would most of the other characters in this film. When he says, you fought for your country, didn't you, to the African-American guy? Did I miss something? Like, how did he know? Was that just a guess or was he wearing a patch or something? I, like, I didn't see anything. That's a good question. That seemed like a hell of a guess. Yeah. Maybe know. the mentalist, too. You know, now that you mentioned it, let's let's mention, I think the, the best one of the best things about this movie is they said, who can play a villain really well? Mads Mikkelsen, of course. And the best casting. I mean, one of the best casting choices was getting someone of his caliber in this movie. I think, unfortunately, he's not much of a villain because 
I mean, again, he's a Nazi who was hired by NASA, helps the Apollo moon landing, and now he wants to go back and kill Hitler, <laughs> which means that this movie is about Indiana Jones saving, Hi- saving Hitler's yeah, life. Well, I think he wants to take over for Hitler. Like, if anything, I think he wants to kill Hitler so that he can become, like, the new Fuhrer. Like, he sees... Yeah, he sees all the mistakes that Hitler made, and he's just like, no, no, I could do it better. I know what those mistakes are. Like, Hitler was too much of a pansy for him. He wants to be the ultimate Hitler. Super mega Hitler. <laughs> and so, so again, like, yes, I mean, yes, obviously, Mads Mikkelsen probably not going to be much better than Hitler, realistically. But it is ironic, given how many times Indiana Jones has foiled the Nazis, that now it's not as much about foiling the Nazis as foiling a Nazi. So that's I mean, Mads Mikkelsen is the best part of this movie, like bar bar none. It's just how can you make a movie with Indiana Jones and just focus on the villain? That's that's more the question. Like, you can't do that. He's no Belloc, though. You know, like, I think Belloc as the anti Indiana Jones was so much better than what Mads Mikkelsen is doing here, because Mads Mikkelsen isn't given a chance to do much. And most of the time, it's just him swooping in, taking one part of the dial, swooping in, taking the other part of the dial, swooping in, doing whatever he needs to do. And just, he doesn't seem to have very many problems. And he's got Boyd Holbrook and then Olivier Richter's there to help him out. And Boyd Holbrook, as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, he and James Mangle must have really gotten along on Logan because he's basically playing the exact same character, but without an electronic arm. Well, and I, I was joking with you about it, but Boyd Holbrook is not the character that Billy Magnuson plays from No Time to Die, the most recent James Bond movie. But you could be confused by that because they're both just kind of blonde haired, blue eyed Sam Worthingtons or Sam Whitworths or Joel Kinnaman. Like, I think it's funny. Boyd Holbrook is kind of not needed here either. I mean, he's fine, but it's not like he doesn't add much. I don't think I don't think they give him much to do, unfortunately, either. At times, it seemed like there was too much shit going on. There were too many characters. There was too much shit going on. It could have been pared down a little. You get the CIA chief with the bad knee or bad foot or whatever, and I'm just like, we're going to find out anything about this bad foot? You want to give us one line of dialogue? Maybe he's been chasing Wombat, a.k.a. Fleabag, all around the place, and that's why he's got the... I'm sorry, I will say the person's real name. Phoebe Wallerbridge. He's chasing Helena all over the place, and that's why he's got this bad foot. Maybe she did something to him at some point, and that's why he's really angry at her. But no, we don't know. And so, yeah, you've got five, six people chasing down her at Indy's college, where he just happens to keep the dial in the storage room where it could easily have been stolen. But and the I don't want to be this guy, but it really drives me crazy when you show a character shooting that lady in blue who works for the staff, shoot her in the hallway. She's there face down because he shot her in the back. He shoots, I guess, the the head of the department. He falls down. And then later on, Indiana finds her over in a different hallway, different part of that, and on her back. And I was like, well, she didn't crawl past that head of there and then flip herself over on her back. I mean... And nobody should have moved the corpse, so why did she move? Why was the body move? Was this just a weird continuity thing? Or 
is there was there another scene missing? Because there are scenes that are in the trailer that aren't in the movie that we saw. Oh, it, there, it feels like there's half of a movie on the cutting room floor. The better half. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we have this opening in New York, right? We see old Indiana Jones. He's got no shirt on. Great. Harrison Ford's getting to show off his physique. I, I'm glad. But you mentioned it already, Andy. It's like, since when did this franchise become Forrest Gump? All of a sudden, it's like he goes outside and they're doing this and it's moon day, motherfucker. And it's like, what the fuck is all of this? Like this, this there was none of this before. Like when when we had the last crusade, which is kind of what this feels like, it's aping when he's like he goes to the book burning in Berlin. Right. That made sense contextually thematically historically those things all make sense here it's like all why does it have to be today because the guy looking for the dial is the guy who put the nazi the nazi who put the astronauts on the moon is like that's why and and again like your point mike like that adds nothing him being nasa adds nothing like other than like operation paperclip which they don't even mention they just Mention that. I mean, again, they're not going to mention Operation Paperclip by name, I guess, but they could, given we know that it's a thing. I mean, you don't have to call it that then, but that's what's going on. And I was that was the thing I was most excited about in the movie was this idea of like drawing on reality and they just don't do anything with it. They just go, well, it takes place on this day. And this guy did this thing, but as to informing the decisions that he makes or anything else, eh, that it's all just kind of expository for no reason. The reason that doesn't even have to be there, though, is because they make it seem like Mads Mikkelsen is the only guy that was responsible for for the, the rocketry. And I'm going back just a minute here. When we were talking about the unneeded characters, the part that about this that really irks me is the one character we actually want to see again, Sala, disappears, just disappears. And it's like it was kind of like that old, I think it was Hitchcock that said, if you show a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third. Well, I mean... Okay, Sala does show up in the third, but we think, I thought he would show up. I thought, you know, just in the nick of time, he would show up and save Indy, but isn't he gone until the end? Or I thought for sure he was going to get Marion, and they were going to save the day at the end of the film. You know, he comes in as this deus ex Sala smacking the guy in the, the face, punching him the, guy, the hippie in the face, where we find out about Mutt's death just through... A random thing on the TV. Good thing I was paying attention to that. And they're just like, oh, and his son died in Vietnam or whatever. I mean, it could be <laughs> Vietnam. and He died on the way to his home planet. Oh, <laughs> so was, bad. He was bougie, bro. <laughs> I mean, you know, think back. Because, again, in preparation for this, I watched the first four begrudgingly on that fourth one. And don't forget, in that fourth one, Sean Connery still alive at the time dies off screen denholm elliott dead at the time dies off screen so his his death makes sense in the way they handle it but they killed off sean connery the exact same way more or less ignominiously and and here's the thing i mean they set up the idea that like what would you do if you could go back in time and warn yourself and it's like i would warn my son to not go to vietnam like it's just it's it's ridiculous so fucking it's fucking strange because here's the thing James Bond was what Spielberg wanted to direct and they direct he directed Indiana Jones instead, right? Would James Bond, who now spoilers for No Time to Die, there is a child that may be James Bond's in that movie. Would that chi- would James Bond let his child go into the Iraq War? No fucking way. In what universe would 
Indiana Jones go, yes, you can join the Vietnam War. It's such a makes Indiana Jones seem like a really bad father in a really weird way, given that there was an entire movie about his interrelational problems with his own father. And four was kind of about that too. And then they're like, but he just went to Vietnam and died. The end. Like, why do you he just had, doesn't have to be there. This is kind of a day in Indiana Jones's life. This movie. It's like, I don't know why we needed to even fucking address it, frankly. Well, and why would he go back and try to talk Mutt out of enrolling in the armed services why doesn't he go back to when Marion found out that she was pregnant and actually be a father for this child who didn't have a father for years and years? When he finds out that he has a kid, he's just like, whoa, why didn't you tell me? And he's kind of upset in that fourth one, if memory serves. Go ahead and go back and be the father that Henry Jones Sr. never was for you. The weird tonal thing about this movie is Phoebe Waller-Bridge always... She's some sort of now mercenary, and she's always talking about like, oh, yeah, I've got all these gambling debts, and there was this prince here in Morocco who uh, you know, I was supposed to marry, and I left him at the altar, I sold the ring, yada, yada, and she's just all like happy-go-lucky. It's like she's in one movie, and Harrison Ford's in another movie, because she's there having a great time, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if he had a time machine? What would you do? And he's like, I'd go back and tell my son not to. Right. Right. That. <laughs> Wait a second. There's a point in the movie where an actor who shouldn't be in this series, but is for five minutes, Antonio Banderas gets murdered. And she's like, yeah, we got away. Isn't that awesome? He's like, my friend just got fucking murdered. And it's like, this is something that would have been addressed in the writer's room. You're doing this on screen. Like, this makes no, this, this is like a, it's like one of those Marvel joke moments where it's like, sincere moment brought to you by marvel also ruined with a joke by marvel it's like that but worse because like this is also fucked up and not funny it's this movie is a tonal mess in a way that i was not expecting because four is not a tonal mess four is consistently bad the the tone thing there is so weird it'd be like if she made a joke about maybe you'll get lucky when we go over there and he says I got my penis cut off. You know, like it's the tone. It would just go from, it, it was so weird. Yes, the transition is so, even she's like, fuck, what the fuck just happened? After he says, you know, my son died, blah, blah, blah. And then he turns and walks away. Yeah, you expect her to do the thing with the collar going, mm, gee. A tough crowd, well, tough there's, crowd. There's other weird things in here, like that, that poor horse that he rides through the subway. And I'm just like, <laughs> watch out for the third rail. But when he thinks, Gets the horse back on another subway platform, jumps onto a train and takes off. And I have no idea how the fuck Boyd Holbrook knew which stop to right. be at. Made no sense whatsoever. But he gets on the tra- gets on the train and then he has to say a joke, right? And he says the joke to this older, here's another older African-American woman. He says a joke to her, like he puts the button on it. The button is so bad that I can't even remember what it was because it was terrible. And I was just like, no, there should have been like, I was waiting for no ticket or something like that, you know, because this movie also feels the need to call back to all of the other movies. And we've got mentions of the blood of Kali. We've got mentions of him being shot by his own father you know, there's just like all of these things, of course, mutt in here, all of this stuff where you're like, okay, this is kind of weird. Like he's really cementing this in the, there were four other adventures before this adventure. Whereas the Indiana Jones that we know would have had a thousand adventures, but he feels 
very compelled to tell us about the four or at least three of the four that he's had before. It's almost as awkward as when they're in that big warehouse at the beginning of four and you hear the Ark theme and you know that the Ark of the Covenant is in this warehouse. It's weird. We've mentioned, and you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge did some script punching up on No Time to Die, the most recent Bond film. Can't help but keep bringing it up because in a same way, similar to what this movie is trying to do. This movie is the final story that Harrison Ford is doing as Indiana Jones. They've said they're not going to recast the role. They've said that this is the final Indiana Jones adventure with Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones. Should they do something else with Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Cool, but that's not going to be Indiana Jones. It's going to be Wombat and Wombat friends. Wombat and that fucking whatever. kid. Terrible time. <laughs> with a big-ass mustache. <laughs> this little boy has a mustache. <laughs> Thick as fuck. I don't even know. Like, I was like, you know, is this like Herbie Village has like just a dwarf? No, he's a little boy, but he's just got a fucking mustache. And and, a, and he had a unibrow too. He was a hairy little guy. Speaking of Herbie Village and James Bond, but any all that aside, the, the idea that this is a movie about the end of something, and we're we're paying lip service to things that have come before. In No Time to Die. I mean, again, this is not spoiling the movie. It's in the trailer. He drives the Aston Martin DB5. And there that's the entire opening of the movie has to do with that car, which is the iconic car. And there are so many iconic things in, in, in James Bond, just like there are in Indiana Jones. They are parallel properties in a lot of ways. It's just Indiana Jones didn't make use of the fucking time the way James Bond has, because it's all about Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones until it's not. And you can have Sean Patrick Flannery doing a halfway decent job as young Indiana Jones. And, and you've got all of that backlog. But No Time to Die is a much more successful ending of a story than this movie is, because while that movie has its problems, it understands that that we have to be an entertaining movie while also ending the story. And this movie just feels more like it's just it feels like you're with Indy on a train, just passing stops and getting to see them and wave at them as you conclude to the end of the line and you get off at the end of the movie. It's just, oh, yeah, oh, mention Temple of Doom and mention Mutt, which means you mentioned the fourth movie. It's like, to, to what end? There's nothing else. There's nothing nothing coming from any of this. Like, there's this is it. And so it feels very, it falls very short of being even sentimental. It just kind of feels like they didn't know what to do because this movie has been being kicked around for another 10 years since the last one. I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but she did feel like she was in a different movie a lot of times. And yeah, it was like, she's got so much backstory that I'm like, okay, hitting me with all this stuff that really doesn't matter. Like adding that prince with the scimitar in the tuk-tuk chase just made it longer. And I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need there to be the third group that's chasing and being chased. You know, just, it's enough. Because, like, I can't remember if I said this this time around or not, because we started re-recording, but the whole thing of the, between the horse chase and the tuk-tuk chase, I was just chased out. I was like, okay. The, yeah, the train the tra chase at the beginning really, of the movie. Exactly, because he's going through all these and yeah, running away from the guys. But I was really kind of tired by all of this stuff that's going on. I'm just like, please take a break, have a discussion. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Okay, great. You got this little flashback. Okay, cool. Indy promises that he's going to destroy the dial. I don't think he ever keeps that promise, no matter what. Like, even by the end of the movie, I don't think that that dial's destroyed. He takes it back with him. So 
the way to go. Poor, poor fucking Toby Jones. That poor guy. He's just, I, I don't know why he couldn't survive, but he dies off screen too. And I don't understand his character. Like his character, again, I was expecting more of him in the movie. It just seems like they're, and they're, God, we should mention in the Toby Jones scene, we get to see another, another iteration of de-aged Indiana Jones. And this time it's older than last time, but younger than he is now. So it's like, it's a time that we, I guess, have never really seen in his life. And it's, it may be worse than the opening of the movie, but at least it's like one scene. It stands out even more because he's in like a really well-lit room and he's like interacting directly with Toby Jones and they have to keep showing them like next to one another. It's like, oh my God, like guys, like it worked a little bit better in the opening just because he was just constantly moving and you didn't have to see it constantly well-lit. I agree with that. It it did work better for me in the beginning. And and real quick, on Wombat, if it's okay, I want to make two quick points. When she first showed up, I was thinking... Please, God, don't let her be his gal pal for this movie. Like, I didn't want her to be a love interest. And I thought, this is a classy enough movie that hopefully they're not going to pair an 81-year-old with this hot 30-year-old. And I was so glad that did not become a thing. And so instead, yes, we got the weird, oh, my God, he's got a goddaughter we've never heard once about. That's one. And then two, I didn't buy her backstory that she goes from having this father that's really in love with these pieces to becoming a mercenary of these pieces. And also, if she really did become that, if if she knew where this giant piece was and she, the whole time, the one that she could really make the money on, why did she wait so long to go after it? Not that that really matters. It could happen, but it just seemed a little weird to me. When it was so screenwriting 101 as well, when we see Teddy, the, the kid being introduced, and he's got all of the gauges and dials set out before him, and he's teaching himself how to fly while working security or something at this hotel. And I'm like, okay, well, that kid's going to be flying a plane anytime now. And, and a plane that had a guy in it who didn't need to be there. I don't know why this guy who sleeps better than I ever could in my entire life. A guy slept for a thousand years, but just backwards. I don't know. It was, that was so weird. It was all just to make the one joke of him going, you stole my plane. And then we go, oh my God, there's a guy there. And that was it. And it wasn't a funny joke. Like it wasn't, you were talking about the button with the African-American woman in the subway. This was even shittier. And the line there was, the train's faster was the shitty line in that one. But it's like, it's all just to make this dumb joke of the man sitting up and that's it. There's nothing else. He doesn't knock the shit out of the little kid. He doesn't go, why are there, you know, what is going on with all these warships? Like, <laughs> Do I hear their arrows coming through the door here? So just really, weird. I don't think it did with theirs, but it was just weird. Well, even when it comes to the punchline of, I know a guy and he's got a great ship and I'm like, okay, then you cut to the guy and he's got this really shitty ship. And I think at one point she just says, oh, I was expecting a different ship or something like that. I'm like, no, that was the joke guys. Like he's, he's got this really shitty ship that that should have been the thing. And please God, tell me, why it wasn't Katanga? Why wasn't George Harris in this movie? I mean, I don't know. Is George Harris with us? But this should have been fucking get another actor and de-age him or age him up or something. And make it fucking Katanga. Don't have it be Antonio Banderas in here for five fucking minutes. One of the biggest wastes of this man's time ever. I mean, he had more presence in the SpongeBob movies, you know? Come on. It's like, 
He's just here to die. And that's his only pr- him and that other guy. The other guy that's on the boat. Actually, the two other guys are like, we don't know first, who he first is. red shirt dies and then red shirt two dies. And then Antonio Banderas is like, shit, I'm a red shirt too. I went to the bathroom and I never go to the bathroom. Maybe it's because I'm 50. Maybe it was because I'd been busy all day. I never go to the bathroom, but I ran. I was trying to get done really fast. I come back and fucking Antonio Banderas is on the screen. I thought I walked into the wrong theater. Like, where the hell did this guy come from? And why is he here if it's the right movie? Hey, they never answer that because he has, what, two lines? Two? What? One? There's a point where he's like going to open his mouth and someone else cuts him off. And I was like, wait, wait a second. Like, is that going to be the joke that he doesn't have a lot? It's Antonio Banderas was in one of the best movies of this year. That Puss in Boots Last Wish movie, which is fantastic. And he is what is why? Why? It was really distracting too to have a big name person there to play that little bitty role. And then in what I saw, they didn't really, like I said, I peed, but it didn't really seem like, you know, they had this long friendship here. And he's like, oh, that was my friend. Like, and he's all pissed about it. Like, fuck that. He's an old friend. Okay. He's an old friend. You've never heard of him. It's like Mike and Barney Miller. It's the same thing they did with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's that same, like, just have never heard of him. He was there all the time. He's, you know, it was Agatha all along. It's that same shit. It's like very, you know, it's just like Inspector. I am the author of all of your pain, James. Like, no, you're not. And the fact that they're they're trying to lazy chain, like daisy chain, but lazy chain it together is lazy. And and again, like, oh well, Phoebe Waller Bridge is your goddaughter. Like, yeah, sure. I guess I guess he's never mentioned he didn't have one at any point. So he didn't mention he did either. So, but yeah, like Antonio Banderas, man, like what, what a waste. What a shame. And he's third build. He must have one of the best agents in the world. And if you look at some of the posters, it's like he is bigger than Phoebe Waller-Bridge is on the posters. It's like Indiana Jones, man. And then on the poster, because I successfully, until that motherfucker posted stuff on my Twitter, I had successfully avoided all spoilers for this movie. I hadn't seen any trailers for it. So when I saw the posters, I thought it was Pedro Pascal. And I'm just like, this is another Pedro Pascal thing. This guy's everywhere. Well, and here's the other thing. So I didn't see his name build because the theater that I went to, cocksuckers, I almost feel like I should tell it on here like an ad, started the movie early. So I walk in and yes, I walked in and I was two minutes after the shit started rolling, right? So I don't even get one trailer. I'm already, they're on the fucking train doing shit. So I didn't even get to see, bah, 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 bah. like I missed all of that. So I also apparently missed uh, missed his name, which I'm okay with that. But the bah, 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 I would like to see. I don't think they showed any names at the beginning. I think it was a very cold open. It was the, there was the Disney open. It was a Paramount open. It was Lucasfilm and Disney present or the Lucasfilm icon. And then they went into the movie. They started with Indiana Jones with the bag over his head. And then it says, okay, that's where I okay. came in. He, he was already had the. Rope, they were putting the rope yeah, on his And that's when it says oh, Disney and Lucasfilm, which was a weird credit to see. And then Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So no names at the beginning, not until the end. Yeah. And it feels like a Disney movie. It's so weird to me because, again, I rewatched four and I don't want to be an apologist for four. And I don't think anybody should because four is not a great movie. But at least four felt like an Indiana Jones movie. Like, at least it still had the DNA at the heart of it that made it 
an Indiana Jones movie. Yes, I didn't like where it went. And yes, it where it went is so cuckoo bananas bullshit with the ancient aliens and stuff. And I, I think it's funny. I think it's funny how horseshit it is, because, again, that ancient a- astronaut theorists and all that stuff aside. But like this movie, it feels so like a Disney movie. And the fact that I saw it at the beginning, just like you mentioned, Disney 100, 100 years of Disney. Like, oh, right. This is a Disney thing now. Like we're going back to four real quick. Generally, I would like aliens, right? Generally, I would like time travel. But somehow both of these movies have made that aspect kind of shitty. Like, <laughs> I mean, look, there are aspects of the time travel here that was interesting, but somehow they made it kind of overall feel sucky. And that's how I felt with the aliens in four. Like, how do you make Indiana Jones and aliens be so shitty? And they did it. I don't know. And so these movies do have something in common and something to be impressed about. And it's the way that they ruined things that should have been more interesting. Well, it kind of goes back to the thing that we're talking about with the weaponization of the MacGuffin, the crystal skull. Did the Russians think that they were going to revive the aliens or join with the aliens and then have them attack America or something? Cause there's nothing, there's no reason why the Russians should be interested in these aliens whatsoever. There's no, like we will, take apart the capitalist worldview with these aliens or something. If anything, I think they would grant some knowledge. Oh. That's what it's supposed to. It gave them like okay. infinite knowledge oh boy. is and, what she And got. then her head explodes. Right. Be careful what you wish for you. But again, like the Ark and the Holy Grail play into the climax in the movies in a way that makes sense because what they do has been established. And what the aliens do was never established. And what the dial does is established up until like 30 seconds before it happens. And then it's like Indiana Jones finds, you know, oh shit. Oh no. He's the only, he's the only one who realized. And it's like fucking Christ movie. Here we go. Like all bets are off. Do you know what he's doing? He's doing George Lucas in those story sessions that we read where George is like, well, you know, the sun would have shifted and the stars would have changed. So really we can't use the sun to, figure out where the Ark of the Covenant is because thousands of years have passed. And Indiana Jones becomes that guy. He starts saying, oh, you idiots, there's continental drift. Archimedes didn't know about that. We're going to go back to the wrong period. Which is like so fucking hilarious. And talk about last minute. It's like, once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. And like, I get why they do it when they do it, but it just, again, comes back to this idea of you introduce so many characters and so many other things that we never really get to focus on the, like you mentioned, Andy, we never get to focus on the time travel, just like in the fourth movie. We never really, I mean, we get to talk more about the aliens in the fourth movie than in this movie with the dial, but the dial in this movie is more of a MacGuffin than any of the other things were in the other movies. Cause even in two, the Shankara stones play into the way that the movie concludes with Mola Ram, you know, grabbing him and burning his hands and, you know, freaking out and dying. But in this, it's just like, okay, sure. We only ever see it do its thing one time, which I know the Ark and the Holy Grail are the same way. But in this, it's like, even that it just kind of happens. I don't know. It's, it's very strange to me that this is what they, after all this time and all these other ideas and going to the well of aliens, this is still where they landed is time travel. Like, fuck it. Is that not the last gasp of a dying franchise? Isn't that why they did it in Endgame? Is because that was the last time to do it then, and then you never have to do it again? Like, I just don't They should have time traveled back to when people gave more of a shit about these movies. That would have been helpful. 
Did you see the numbers on this movie? It's making the same numbers as The Flash. It's going to, it's a bomb. Who is this movie for, ultimately? Like, the fans of this movie are what? I mean, I don't know how old you are, Chris. I think it's for me and Mike. And and I'm in my early third. I'm in my early. I grew up with the first three movies. Like I saw the fourth movie twice in theaters the day it came out. Like I was overjoyed to be able to buy Indiana Jones merchandise in 2007, 2008, because there was none of that. Like I had an Indiana Jones hat growing up, like that fucking fedora. I had the Temple of Doom poster in my room. Like that's why it feels like I know that South Park did that. It's the personal attack episode on Indiana Jones. But like at this point, I wonder like, who the fuck is this shit for? Cause like, don't know if young kids are like Indiana Jones. I'm a huge fan of that. Like, so I'm glad I knew establish your cred and that's great for a 31 year old. But I want to say that the majority of the fans are 40 and up, right? Like, I mean, you grew up with them, but I think Mike and, and I'm not, this is, doesn't give a shit. I don't give a shit, but there are people in a different way that grew up with them. Like Mike and I did and people that are older than us, but it's like, I don't, even though you're an exception and I'm really glad you're an exception. I don't think there's that many people under 40 that are super fucking amped to see another Indiana Jones movie. And I think that that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is a lot of the older audiences, hopefully older than Mike and I are the people that just want to stream now. Cause it's too much of a pain in the ass to go to the theater. So who is the audience? There is no audience. That's the problem. There's not really an audience. I think they're looking for a nostalgia that people don't seem to give enough of a shit about for to really be there for many people other than us. I was amped. I bet you guys were amped. But I mean, my ampness left as the movie went on. Now, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is immensely talented. Mads Mikkelsen, wonderful. Antonio Banderas, fucking A. But kids are probably not that super thrilled for Harrison Ford. If anything, you would think you would want to put another big star in here to make it appeal more to the kids. It's not like a 25-year-old is going, oh man, I can't wait for that new Phoebe Waller-Bridge movie to open. That's going to be lit, you know, or whatever the kids (laughs) say these days. Oh man, I, I watched Fleabag all the way back in 2016, and that was so great, you know. I watched Little Mustache Boy with the the fucking unibrow. I'm a big fan of him, you know. It's like, but you know, what are you gonna do? You got to put something or somebody else in here to make it appeal to a little bit more wider audience. And and I doubt many twenty year olds are going. I can't wait to see an eighty one year old in an action movie. And that's where the tonal disconnect comes from, because Phoebe Waller Bridge is in the movie that they should have made, and Indiana Jones a la Harrison Ford, is in the movie that they couldn't help themselves but make because James Mangold made it. <laughs> like it's, it's that like musing on life and age and going growing older. And you're little losing, because ultimately the climax of the movie comes down to, do you want to be out of time and admit you're out of time? Or do you want to like, get with the times, motherfucker? <laughs> and like, that's ultimately the, the question of the movie is, are you ever going to feel out of time, even if you're in? And again, whatever, fine. You want to go that route, movie, fine. James Mangold, go for it. But I just, for me, it's like Indiana Jones is not that avenue. It should have just been a triumphant finish to a career and a character that so many people, like we've mentioned, though, many people that are not more of more of being made every day. I, again, to your point, like this should have been a last hurrah for the people that were fans of this fucking franchise, not attempting to make something to kind of bridge the divide when you know that there's nothing to bridge. There's nothing else here. They're not doing anything else. Like 
you you were on the right track with Mads Mikkelsen. Everything else kind of fails. It's just like everything else kind of fails, other than the fact that they got John Jonathan Reese Davies back into the movie again, which I'm sure he would have come back for four willingly. God, he looks like he's five thousand years old. He looks like the mummy that they dug up. I mean, I feel bad, but as you know, we could talk about Harrison Ford being 81, but God, he looks like he's 50 years older than Indiana. Like he looks bad. I was glad to see him, but God, he looked so shitty. I almost wasn't sure it was him. Going back to my screenwriting stuff that I was talking about before with the kid and the flying, one thing that never seems to pay off, and I've seen writers do backflips to try to make this pay off, is her forcing the card. And there have been writers that I've I've read over the last few days that are just like, oh, well, you get it. Her forcing that seven of spades on everyone with the cards is like Archimedes forcing them to go back to the battle of Syracuse with with the dial. And I'm like, really? That's where you're going to go with this? That's what you're going to try to prove to me? To me, it just made no sense because I was waiting for her to do another card trick or something later on in the film. I mean, she does a little thing with the dynamite sticking out of her back pocket, those kind of things, but nothing to do with cards. And then the other thing is that he's got those papers, which seem to disappear pretty quickly after that, where they have the dates of 8-20-69 all over the place. And I'm like, all right, well, first off, we know that an American had to write that. Otherwise, it would be 28-69. They don't seem to give a shit about that, that Toby Jones and Mads Mikkelsen are both from Europe. But anyway... We've got a date here, folks. 8-20-69. The ticker tape parade for the astronauts took place on 8-13-69. So we've got a ticking clock. Something's going to happen on 8-20-69. And they really never tie the thread that the gate is going to open on 8-20-69. That we, are, we have a ticking clock. We don't feel like we have a ticking clock with this movie. We don't get the Nazis are going and digging at Tannis scene from the from the first movie, the scene with, you know, it's it's the arc, you know, and, you know, that whole thing with the the specialist, like there's none of that in this movie. And they, it needed that. Like if these are James Bond, which, again, they kind of are, then this movie doesn't have the scene that that the other movies have had, which is the explanation of the thing. I will say I appreciate as someone who played a lot of Indiana Jones video games, including the LucasArts point and clicks. I can't help but feel like the whole scene in the archives is a callback to the fate of Atlantis video game, which would have made a much more compelling movie. Cause again, it's just, for me, it's like you, you have to, I know that the, the dial is a real thing, but like that kind of actually wasn't never the point of the other things. The Ark and the Holy Grail are maybe real things. Like, and you've imbued them with what one could consider, and I would think a lot of people would agree, like um, an understandable level of power associated with these biblical relics. In this, it's like, this could do whatever the fuck, frankly. Like, it does, I'm not even sure they understand what the fuck they're they're trying to introduce because yes harrison ford says well we can travel to a fissure in time and this finds that fissure but it seems like there's actually more going on and they never kind of explain it and they kind of just yada yada it which in of all the movies to yada yada even in the fourth movie indiana jones doesn't yada yada the explanation of what they're going after it never does that it takes a moment to do it and this movie is just 
not as concerned as the other movies have been, which is kind of strange. He's his own M in this one when he's giving the lecture. That's as much backstory as we get. And I'll tell you, that whole thing with the Battle of Syracuse when he's talking about those claw things that would grab the ships, and we see those kind of peripherally as the planes are flying way too low over this battle. Fucking pull up, man, or else you're going to get speared like they do. But anyway... They also talk about the mirrors and how they were setting fire to the ships with these mirrors. And I was like, yeah, I want to see that. I want to see like death laser beam from these mirrors, like that casino in Vegas that was cooking people by the pool because the the windows were all set up incorrectly. It's like, yeah, I want to see that kind of stuff. No, no, we're not going to see that. We're going to see old Archimedes come out. We're going to see this Roman soldier get ganked. And apparently Archimedes died at that battle so that he isn't dead when Indiana leaves, allegedly, or however that happens, because he gets knocked out cold. I think that Roman who was coming after Indiana was the one that should have been killing Archimedes, and they're all worried about the sanctity of time. And I'm like, since when is Indiana Jones worried about the sanctity of time? Well, I I was convinced that the entire third act of this movie was going to be he goes back in time. He's like, well, I'm going to leave a note for myself about my son. And then in that kind of the coda, you have, well, Marion is back because like Mutt is still alive. But you don't fucking see him. But it's like, well, I got a call from Mutt or, you know, answers the phone and it's Mutt or, you know, it's like that would have been yeah, awesome. like back to the future. Right. Back to the future. Wanted it, wanted it one way and had its cake and then ate it too twice with the second and third movie. But even it understood that you can tease that whole don't don't mess up time. But if you mess up time for the positive, nobody cares. And that's the thing that they do in Endgame. It's like, yes, we fucked with the timeline. But guess what? We got ostensibly quantitatively a better timeline out of it. So nobody cares. And that should always be the way time travel is addressed in, in these movies. It's not, we can't fuck up time. It's we can't make it worse. So do whatever you can to make it better. And yes, I get that. That's where you kind of get the paradox of it, but at least that's more interesting than just doing this. Well, I'm not going to stick around because I'll fuck up time thing. Cause it's like, Jesus, what is this? The butterfly effect all over again. Like it's so, so played out at this point. Well, she's like, oh, there's not enough medicine and you, you've you been shot and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, first off, he's walking around just fine after being shot. Uh, of course, there's a shoulder wound. But I'm like, hey, guys, don't forget Archimedes was also a physician. So, you know, maybe you're in okay hands here. And if not, you die at home, you die here in ancient Greece. Eh, what do you want? So, but yeah, I totally thought that they would have had some sort of thing where either him or Phoebe Wallerbridge make that trip and talk to Mutt and he's there alive and we're good by the end of the film. Great. Marion comes back. They do the little kiss on the elbow thing, which was a nice throwback. I guess do call back to Raiders with that, but yeah, I really wanted his son to be alive too. And they don't really, he like gives that speech about how, you know, they've, broke apart after Mutt died and that he's basically living as this bitter old man, but they don't really address that too much in this. I mean, other than just Harrison Ford being a bitter old man. I felt like the ending is totally unearned, right? Like, like what do we do here? Let's make everything perfect to this ridiculous amount. So we have Marion with the biggest 
bullshit appearance. Like she's there for 30 seconds and Sala's like, oh, they all come in like, here's our happy family. And they're all of this shit happening at the very third, last 30 seconds or whatever. And it's like, oh, everything's happy. The police aren't even looking for him anymore. What has changed that? Like, I don't understand. Like that really pissed me off. Like, and there, no one goes. Well, we have to lay low until we figure out, you know, the, did they figure out the whole situation with the cops and clear him while he was asleep? It was awful. I'm sorry, that la- the ending was awful. I thought that the 20 minutes leading up to it was awful, but then it got there and I thought, I still missed it up, I'm not going to lie, not him and Marion, but I thought it was an awful scene. Well, when they played Marion's theme, that's when it got me, because I was just like, oh, that music, that love affair that they had, and, you know, oh, remember when she was 12 and he was 22? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's not weird, though. We promise. Okay. Steven Spielberg, he's here with us now. And he's he wasn't fine. grooming her. He wasn't. It was none of that. He was he wasn't. He it wasn't like an Elvis Jerry Lee Lewis thing at all. It, it was just. They were married. They had kids in the end. Come on. What's the problem? Yeah. It's like someone saw Return of the King and they were like, how can we make this like that? But dumb. I mean, again, it has that same feeling, because if you think about Return of the King, Frodo drops and it's like. What happened? Where am I? And and you have to come to the realization of what's right. happening with the character. You don't see the character coming to you come to with the character. And in this, it's so bizarre because they go back in time in an Indiana Jones movie to a time that has nothing to do with anything other than continental drift. And it's like, okay, sure. And there's a bunch of Nazis and we get to see Mads Mikkelsen in a straight up Nazi outfit, which is a wild piece of imagery. I will say to my wife's credit, she mentioned, and I think we should mention here, Mikkelsen doesn't look remotely German, even when they put him in a Nazi outfit. But um, what an ignominious way to end an interesting character. It feels like they really had no idea. I know that there were mentions of rewrites of the third act of this movie, and that's the only explanation. It feels like they improvised the whole movie. Like, And then they get to the third act, and it's like, what happens? So he goes back in time, and their plane crashes, and they die, and they meet Archimedes, and then, um, well, does he stay or not? And they're like, well, mm, well, his last movie, and well, maybe. And it's like, just make a fucking decision here. And they don't even, they make a decision and then they don't let the character get the decision that they made. They go, the character's going to make a decision, bop, deus ex fist to the fucking face. And it's like, and that is a a better way of doing this how than actually earning your ending. I love that when they get there, Archimedes, they just happen to be right the fuck where Archimedes is walking around, one. But the other thing was, is that, was I wrong on this? Like, I felt like there was an implication that, and it's that trope thing where Archimedes doesn't realize that he's going to make this thing until he sees theirs. But if that, and, he, and if that's, the, I like that kind of trope, but the problem here is if he died at that battle, how would that have ever happened? I mean, even if it's changed now, if in the original timeline, he wouldn't have known until that, how would that even be possible? The other thing is we talk about how no one seems to know exactly how the dial works, but he looks at it and instantly knows like, I don't know. It was it was fascinating to me, that aspect. The whole movie just seems really sloppy. Some of it I had fun with its sloppiness. Your wife brought up a really good point. My wife was also bringing up when, when he goes to the airport, she's like, wait, aren't the cops looking for him for murder? And then when they're doing the whole map with the dot stuff later on, she raises up her hand in the theater and does the... The fingers mean the money thing. And she's like, where are they getting all the money to pay for these trips? And I was like, 
Because he lives in a hovel. I, I, it's not like he's got a money belt when he leaves the house. He has no idea he's going to be going on an adventure at this point. Stala gave him some, <laughs> some money. That's what. Oh, that's what. Let's compare the scene of the kind of the tomb raiding. Because we get a little bit of tomb raiding in this movie. We got some in the fourth movie as well when they're looking for the the tomb of oh whoever whoever has the skull buried under his chest and the thing with the tilting plate it's actually kind of fun the third movie i guess you could consider the third act the tomb raiding thing or the part with there's a little in venice as well right the thing with the rats and then the thing in the palace in indy 2 and then the well of souls thing for me this was the best part of the movie because it was kind of the most like indiana jones of the things that we see and you don't have to have harrison ford doing a lot in these scenes compared to him like rolling around on top of a fucking train or jumping out of an airplane with parachutes all sorts of things that no like you know timothy dalton was doing in living daylights and now indiana jones is doing it in this movie but the thing that i i will say though because they, the tomb raiding scene has the thing that you mentioned andy in it they're like oh my god the sarcophagus it has an eagle right. with propellers on it. And I'm like, oh, no, it's doing that thing that so many time travel things do where it's like, wait, he has the watch on his arm that Jürgen Voller's watch. And it's like, oh, no, move like so they're going to travel back in time. The movie is telegraphing what it's going to do 20 minutes before it does it. And it's just I don't know. It's it takes the wind out of what ends up happening because. What ends up like if you don't spoil it, it actually is kind of interesting. But if you tell the audience what's about to happen, like with characters going, look at this thing. It has propellers like an airplane. I thought it was some low budget looking tomb rating, too, because until they get to the actual room where the coffin is, like you've got this 10 minutes of them going through this really narrow space that looked like it could have been a sound set or something like a sound stage, And it looks like shit. And then all of a sudden, and it, I don't know, it just looked with like CGI crap to me. bugs. It's a vertical And then all of a sudden there's like, you know, the fucking bugs on them and shit. Like, I don't know. It just, and they were only in that one area. Like, I thought this is a perfect place for a snake, not a bullshit, uh, you know, eel. Like they use eels. Oh, he looks like a snake. But no, I mean, because that's the indie thing, right? Like we're going to have a snake reference. No, there's no snakes in there. There's really nothing worth the shit until you get there. And then, I don't know. It just, that was my thing is I thought this looks really low budget. This particular scene, everything else is overdone with CGI and shit for no particular reason. But this, the it looked like shit to me. I don't know. If anything, I thought they were going to do an homage to the first three films and do, here's a room with bugs, here's a room with rats, and here's a room with snakes. Like, And the, when they went into the one room and they're like, oh, all this methane, which seems to bother Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but doesn't seem to bother No, he's just like, whatsoever. it's good. He's a Terminator. Yeah. Doesn't even like put a scarf over his face, nothing. He's just like, yeah, he doesn't cough. She's coughing her head off. And eventually he's like, oh, this guy was all into water displacement. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Eureka. And I thought that was really funny when he says Eureka when he sees it. My 81 year old body is immune to methane. Okay, I'm yeah, sorry. Exactly. I'll let you go, but it's just like, whatever, dude. <laughs> but I thought they were going to do this homage and stuff. And then, of course, no. And then apparently, like, you can see stills from the trailer, there's a giant. A uh, stone ball that they find at one point that I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge releases, and I was just like, okay, yeah, they. I think they were going for more of an homage to the earlier films, and they trimmed it down to be just the bugs, which look terrible. They all look like hey, right. CGI bugs now, and I'm like, no, they were probably half real in Temple of Doom. 
I think, unfortunately, James Bond and Mission Impossible and a lot of other franchises, action franchises, have gone the correct route, which is focusing on doing things practically. I mean, look, Tom Cruise is doing a lot of his own stunts. Daniel Craig did a lot of his own stunts in those Bond movies. But, you know, who didn't do a lot of their own stunts in those Bond movies was Roger Moore late in his tenure in A View to a Kill, where it's every shot of a person doing something is a body double or a stuntman and then close-up shots of him being james bond are just him roger moore and this is what this felt like it has that weird disconnect you know in lord of the rings which we've kind of already mentioned peter jackson is the god of making disparate things that shouldn't work work like the fact that they're filming with small actors using masks using force perspective all of those things in multiple times they're using multiple things in multiple scenes and it all works together and it never looks cheap or shoddily put together and here to your point andy everything looks really shoddily put together and cheap and they spent like 300 million dollars on this movie and i just don't understand if you know your actor can't do things why do you do this thing again that requires him to do things why not have him be again. I'm not advocating for this, but why not have just killed him off like they did with Han Solo and have that be half of the movie is then them coming to terms with the death of Indiana Jones and avenging his death. Like I just because then you free up a lot of space and room to actually do things believably as opposed to doing a lot of the things in CGI. And again, like all those other action franchises that I mentioned, they are really committed to doing things practically. And it shows. It really shows. And Indiana Jones 1, 2, and 3 really were committed to it because, again, they also came before a time where it was as prevalent as it is now. But now it just feels like a, a facsimile of something that we grew up loving just with all of the love and fun kind of drained out of it and not in the way that four was just goofy and dumb. This movie just feels kind of decisions being made by committee, which I think is like a Marvel movie or a star Wars movie at this point. I think that Laura Croft really ate Indiana Jones's lunch while he was away from the table, because I kept thinking of the two earlier Laura Croft movies. And then the one that came out just a few years ago and I was thinking that I liked the tomb reading in those better than I liked the tomb reading in this one. A lot of the stuff in this felt derivative of things in those. And so I just was like, oh, yeah, no, like I want to see more of the water displacement thing, all of the puzzles, all of those things that you need to do. Like, OK, great. There's a crescent up on the rock. So let's go up here rather than go through this entrance. But then once you get inside those caves, it gets really confusing and there's no sense of geography. There's no, I have no idea how long they're traveling that the bad guys can show up wherever they want to. As far as I know, they don't have teleportation powers, but it definitely feels that way. The death of that one giant guy seems really horrific to me that kid handcuffs him to the gate underground and he drowns. I was kind of horrified by that i would much rather have my my villains get their faces chopped off by propeller blades or get shot in the in the heart or something my god that was really morbid <laughs> that was dark the weaponization of the the macguffin is you know there there isn't any because it's a time travel device 
you know, like the Holy Grail allows Julian Glover to quickly age and like, oh, okay, like makes perfect sense. Like, and the thing with Kate Blanchett, you know, she gets so much knowledge that her brain can't contain it and her head explodes. Like, makes sense. In this, it's what? The, the plane the crashes. Omens. Yeah. Yeah. And there and there's Mads Mickelson just like his head on a rock, like with his face burned. It's so it's so unfulfilling. Like, and look, here's the thing. In another role that Mads Mickelson had where he played a villain in Casino Royale, you could almost compare how he's treated there and here simultaneously because that has a rather anticlimactic end to his character in that movie. But I wouldn't consider that death ignominious. I would consider in this movie, the villain's death is so ignominious. It's like, what was, why was he even in this? Because ultimately, you know, this movie has the the biggest criticism that can be leveled against it is, remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones didn't do anything. The Nazis would have killed themselves. Well, yes and no, but the Nazis would have still had the Ark. So yeah, someone needed to be there to take it away. In this, it's like, if they, if he had just let them be, they would have gone through time ate shit, and then what? Like, he didn't need to be there at all, at all this time, is what I'm getting at. And I just kept thinking of other time travel movies. I can't remember. I don't think, Chris, you were on the Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea episode, where it's three basically ex-Nazis that are living in Rio, hire a plane or hire a time travel machine, and they want to go back and give Hitler a nuclear bomb near the end of the war when things have taken a bad turn for Hitler. And at one point they go back and they think that they're in one year, but they're actually in another year. And I'm just like, yeah, that was a much better movie than what I'm watching here with Mads Mikkelsen suddenly revealing his plan here of I'm going to go back and out Hitler Hitler. The other one that I kept thinking of is – a movie that I liked up until the very end of it, which was Days of Future Past, the X-Men movie, where when Logan wakes up at the end, everything seems to be normal and good and all this. And I'm just like, wait, no, things have changed. Like you, things that you were doing have changed where we're at. Like everything's good now. Like everything's fine. And that was totally the end of this movie where he just wakes up and it's like, oh, everybody's good now. All right. But you know, but Mud's still dead. I cannot believe that the climax of this movie is decided against the character's wishes in a way like Indiana Jones dying in the past. It could have worked like I, I look, I think it could have as much as I don't want to see Indiana Jones die like he's effectively dead as a character anyways, because they're not doing anything else. So, yes, he survived in the final closing minutes of his story. But to what end? Even ostensibly, if you were like, well, Indiana Jones in 2023 is long fucking dead. That's what he is, because he would be like a hundred something now. So and that's and that's the problem ultimately with all these movies is they had to set it in 69 because Harrison Ford is un I don't say unforeseeably old, but he's so old that you can't cover up how old he is anymore. Like when four came out, it's like, ah, oh, he's kind of he looks 70. Yeah, he's 70, but he looks eh, late 50s, early 60s, because, again, he's an actor and he takes good care of himself like he can. But here it's like the guy is so old that we can't cover up the fact that he's old, which means the action has to be what it ends up being. And because of that, we have a movie that's its climax is like, I want to stay in the past. No, you don't. Bang. The end. I really would have liked to have had 
more of a conversation rather than them just yelling in ancient Greek to this befuddled Archimedes. And of course, I keep thinking of Socrates from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, too. And I'm waiting for, you know, all we are is dust in the wind, dude. For a time travel movie, because this now is an Indiana Jones movie that's time travel. It, it wastes every opportunity to do anything with it other than the one thing it does. And again, it's the stacked deck. Okay, that's really boring. Yeah, I get that it's kind of a trope now that the thing can only do it once. I mean, again, the arc, the grail, the stones, the skull. But you want to do something different? Do, don't do that then. Do something else. Like have them fucking with the time travel thing and him going back and forward in time over and over again. Like, if you're going to do a de-aged Indiana Jones anyways, why not just go full fucking hog? I just don't understand. Or have him interact with his younger self. Again, I don't get why they passed up all these opportunities, given what the budget of this movie is. Because, guys, this movie's budget is like $300 million. It's one of the most expensive movies ever made. When we talk about the better time travel movies, which is most of them, their budgets were so much smaller. And what's crazy to me is we there was a time when we thought, you know, Batman for $50 million was an outrageous budget. Now we're looking at $300 million. And yeah, you have to account for, you know, the time and stuff. But you look at like, you know, different kinds of movies. But I was thinking of this, you know, like movies like The Godfather when you're going way back. But it's still proportionally nowhere close to what $300 million would have been. Or even something like Pulp Fiction, which was like $7 million. You know, today, proportionally, still nowhere close to $300 million. Those are better movies. And the point I wanted to make that I thought was interesting, and it's always been that way, is that great filmmakers have to find ways to work around a budget, right? If you only have so much money, you have to find a way to make that budget work. And it seems like a lot of times they have to come up with more creative things to make that work. And in the opposite way, it seems like when you have $300 million, your creativity seems to go right out the window. And it's been that way with most of these gigantic budget movies. It's it's interesting to me because it's like, here's money. We don't need any intelligent anything. We'll rely on CGI everything. I don't know. It's just It was just a thought I had, though, that it seems like so many great movies are made with no budget, and these movies suck for $300 million. Time crimes, which cost probably $200. Right, absolutely. <laughs> it is one of the best time travel movies yes. ever. Even something like Endgame, right? Okay, so the budget of Endgame was $356 million. I could actually see where the budget of that movie went. I'm not even sure where the budget of this movie went. $300 million, like $300 million. I mean, there was a massive advertising campaign. Does that include in the $300 million? Because at least I could see where that went. It didn't help. But I can see where that went, but nothing in the movie other than a ridiculous amount of CGI speaks 300 million to me. And it's not for acting because most of these actors, they're not $300 million actors. I mean, who's your biggest actor is going to be Harrison Ford. I mean, come on. And they're not shooting on location. I mean, the New York stuff is definitely just all the lot kind of stuff. I mean, and the camera is set up, I think exactly the same place for both when he walks out to go to work. And then also when the Salah walks out with the kids to go get ice cream, it just seemed so yeah, cheap in so many ways. Did somebody walk around with walk, walk out with a hundred million in their pocket. This is the budget of four again, 2008. The budget of four was 185 million. I genuinely don't understand because to learn 
I didn't realize going into the movie that it was such an expensive movie. And frankly, now it makes me kind of more perturbed at this movie because for this movie to be $300 million, there should be more. There should be more things. The action should have been good. The action should have been compelling. The Anything should have been compelling because the only things that are compelling, I guess, are what Harrison Ford doing Indiana Jones one more time in a version of Indiana Jones we've never seen before. I don't get what the point of the movie ultimately is, because even at the end of the movie, they Looney Tunes themselves out of existence. And I, it's like, what is is this the end or is there more to come? Like, I just don't understand because you said there's no more. Oh, that's stupid. Yeah. The hat being pulled off the line. I was surprised there wasn't. Yeah, like Porky yeah, I was Pig surprised and there fucking Looney Tunes. Noise. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Goodbye, folks. Like, and then he speeds off into the distance. Like, I just don't understand. Like, was who was this for? And if whoever it was for, did they enjoy it? And I just the, the, the amount of people that saw this movie feels like was it just for James Mangold? I mean, really. I don't imagine James Mangold had a good time on this movie. <laughs> I just have a feeling that he didn't have a nice time because he was probably answering to a lot of executives on this. Right. That's what it feels like. Like the third act of this movie is the worst offender, but it feels like a film by committee. They were like, well, we like maybe James Mangold and David Kep and some of the other folks fought for Harrison Ford to stay in the past. Maybe they fought for it. Maybe they fought what I would consider to be the good fight if you're making this kind of movie and you're addressing this kind of thing, which is he wants to be part of the past. He spent his entire life chasing the past and now he can be there, which is like a thing that almost seems impossible in the, in the, in the context of this time travel feels almost like a bridge too far, but yet he's there and he's in the past. So why go all the way and not give him that? That would have been almost poetic. It really would have. At the time, I was like, don't end this way. And then when we ended with what we ended with, I think I was thinking, no, go back and end with that. It's like you have this opportunity to say, well, you know, I've ruined my life where I live now. And my only option is maybe to go back and live a life somewhere else and maybe leave a note for my future self. And like, there you go. And, you know, you could then have a Phoebe Waller Bridge epilogue where in the future, Mutt is still alive or something. And that's where that inroad is where it's like, you know, Indiana Jones sacrificed himself so Mutt could live type thing. And it doesn't even have to be life. You could interject in there. I've ruined this series where I live now and maybe I could go back. Was that a bridge too far? I'm sorry, but. I honestly don't think that James Mangle really gets Indiana Jones. Like was talking about the whole idea of the Archimedes dial thing and he's talking about like, oh, yeah, I came up with that before we even did this because of time. And it's really about Indy getting old and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, OK, yeah, that's good. That all makes sense. I'm with you there. But then he talked about how the Ark of the Covenant, that that was a test of Indiana's faith, that he didn't believe in any sort of spiritualism that was a bunch of hocus pocus to him. And I know he talks a little bit about hocus pocus, but when he brings up the Ark of the Covenant – to those army guys, you can see the excitement in his face. He 100% believes that there is an arc. It's not like he doesn't believe in this thing. And the way he's just like, didn't you guys ever go to Sunday school? I mean, when they're, when they're talking about Tannis, he's just like, Oh, Tannis, you know, he's just so excited about it. I don't think that he was testing his faith in that movie. I think that James Mangold is totally off base with that. 
this movie smacks of again to go back to James Bond this smacks of what Sam Mendes tried to do with Skyfall and Spectre where it's like we're going to have a musing on the character of James Bond and and what really drives him and who is he as a man and what does he do and what it's like you know i just want to be this guy for once i don't fucking give a shit if he's going to cook breakfast for himself, if he's going to eat a waffle or a pancake, I give a shit about what adventure he's going on. Cause that's the way this, I get that we want to have amusing on the finale of a character and you want to have Phoebe Waller-Bridge calling him a tomb raider and a grave robber. And- I seem to remember that in Honduras, you were accused of being a grave robber rather than an archeologist. Well, the newspapers greatly exaggerated the incident. And wasn't it the Sultan of Madagascar who threatened to cut your head off if you ever returned to his country? No, it wasn't my head. Then your hands, perhaps. It wasn't my hands, it was my... my misunderstanding. Exactly what we have here, Dr. Jones. Fine, you're going to do that, but you don't have to. You could just make a movie that is in the vein of the other movies that were in the vein of other things intentionally that weren't trying to be some musing on faith or other bullshit. They were just action movies. And for once, I want to be that guy to just go, they were just fucking action movies. And that's why we loved them. Not because they were some introspective anything. And then they try to do this and it's like, and see what I mean? Like, it just doesn't really work. I think Mangold's a darn good director. I really love what he did with Logan, though I think a lot of that comes from the Scott Frank script, if memory serves. But, I mean, Jess Butterworth, his brother, John Henry, they're really pretty solid writers as well. David Kep, I have some issues with here and there, not always liking everything that he's done, though he's done some great stuff. Thinking about Indiana with the whip in this the scene where they're doing the auction and he brings out the whip and he's whipping around and everybody is you know, freaking out. And then they all pull out guns. That's where there needs to be a punchline. And there really is no punchline. Like the punchline, I guess is maybe the pulling out of the guns, but there needs to be something else after that. And all that happens is they just fall to the ground. Like he and Phoebe Waller is just ducked down. I'm like, that's it. That's your solution to stuff. As they're shooting all their guns, you're just going to duck down in here. So and it worked. And it <laughs> works, but that's not the way to end that scene. They nuked the fridge. Hey, I did, but there was one part that I thought was fun. Moving back, that I forgot to mention, and no one else mentioned the part when that big gun on top of the train gets stuck, and it just keeps firing, and the train is going around the bend, and it's just picking off Nazi one by one by one. I thought that was awesome. Now, if anything else in the movie had been as fun as that, I would love this movie. But anyway, I just thought that was great. That was a really good thing. And the sound of the gun sounded really good. Yeah. And seeing all those Nazis being picked off. It's always fun to watch Nazis get killed. Let's be honest. This is a pro-Nazi punching. So I was going to make the joke. I almost wondered if the reason that this movie is flopping at the box office is because there are now so many Nazi sympathizers and they knew that the Nazis were not going to win. Therefore, they did not want to go. But that is only a theory, just like the card game thing. It's just a theory. There are movie fans on both sides. Andy, do you want to give your final thoughts first or should I go? Mixed bag. I wanted it to be better. I liked some of it. Probably I was a little bit of a stan in that, you know, I talked about the beginning part. It didn't really bother me that much. But like I said, my enthusiasm for the movie, I came in with it super high. I was going to accept a lot as long as it didn't take place in the fridge. But it got more and more into the fridge as it went. I just, 
I don't know. I lost my enthusiasm and the last third was mostly boring for me. Thankfully, this is the last time that we ever have to talk about Indiana Jones. And I say thankfully only because the final movie, I think kind of, I don't think it did anything better or worse than four in terms of leaving the character in a spot. That's interesting. I think four was a little bit more of a resounding success in the terms of, how we left the character of Indiana Jones and the, the journey he goes on. He finds out that he's a dad. He finds out that he has a, a son that's kind of a, an ass like he is. He reunites with Marion and he saves the day. And, you know, John hurts along for the ride. And by the end of this movie, sure, I guess Sala and Marion are there and they went for ice cream and who the fuck knows, frankly. And, uh, you know, I, as an Indiana Jones fan who remembers when he was too short to go on the ride at Disneyland when he went when he was six, who had a fedora, who wanted to be an archaeologist and had the Temple of Doom poster in his room for 12 years, essentially. This movie, I can't believe it, but I fell asleep for like two or three minutes in this movie when they were underwater. Like, and I, I'm ashamed to admit it, but for me, kind of speaks to more where I came came into this movie after the fourth movie, I was so jaded that I was not excited for this movie. I was just hoping it wouldn't be an affront. And there are some parts that I enjoyed, but I think ultimately I'm glad this is the last time we have to talk about Indiana Jones, but I'm glad that the three of us got to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark for six hours, which I think for me is what I will always think about when I think of this movie is the reading of the Lost Ark, as opposed to the Dial of Destiny ultimately being kind of the worst of all five. The best part of the movie was us getting to talk about it. It was good seeing you guys again. I'm not that huge of a fan of Last Crusade, but them riding off into the sunset was the way to end this whole franchise. That hits me more emotionally than anything four or five ever did. And I I think I read on the ringer, they were like four and five or less sequels and more epilogues to the first three unneeded epilogues, unfortunately. And, you know, I refer to this entertainment weekly that I had as a kid in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it was all about sequels and things in development hell. And they talked about Indiana Jones four. And to think that we now have Indiana Jones five, If I could go back and tell myself then, like, you're not only going to get four, but you're also going to get five. Like, it's still crazy. I can't believe that it happened. But, like, please stop with these sequels. We, like, we need to start doing – we need to start understanding that pop culture things that people used to get animated about don't do it for people anymore. And if you want to make money in this show business, you got to stop going back to the well because I think it's dry. You know what I think we should do, guys? We should all just take a vacation to a beach in Hawaii and start pitching ideas. Yeah. All right. I got this guy. Hear me <laughs> right. out. Indiana Smith. They wouldn't let us make an Indiana Jones movie, so we're going to make our what own What is the one? Cleveland Smith, Smith or right? whatever? The, yeah. The Sam the Raimi thing? Yeah. <laughs> do you remember, Mike White, at the end of the 90s when we were going to do that book on the unproduced screenplays? And there were a shitload of Indiana Jones screenplays, which all got obviously crammed into the last movie before this. But I just thought of that. That was great. And at the time we were like, these are so weird ideas, you know, and, and now here we are. And I wish they'd maybe made those instead of these movies. I much rather would have had a, a monkey that has a peach pit that makes you immortal. That would have been pretty great. I mean, again, I, I come back to the Indiana Jones video games that I played as a kid. Fate of Atlantis, fucking 
the other one, the the one where it's like in China and it takes place right before Temple of Doom. Like, fuck, just just don't don't do this. This I don't know. Like, you know what? The Mummy was the best Indiana Jones sequel. Fucking fight me on that one, guys. Come on. You know how bad these are? Is it Atari? I'm going back here. Atari 2600 had the Raiders of the Lost Ark game, which was awful. I mean, it was terrible. And I played the shit out of that. And it was so bad. And yet it was better than these movies. James Mangold. It's all good. It's all. Yeah. You know what? E.T. This this makes this is like E.T. It's just like there's a bridge too far. Thank you so much, Chris and Andrew, who have been uh, with me on this incredibly long journey talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's taken a year almost for us to put this together, which is kind of wild. But thank you, Chris, for reminding me that there was a fifth Indiana Jones movie. It's like, Mike, why are we doing this? What are you doing this for something? <laughs> you right? gave like, me purpose, okay. Chris. <laughs> thank you guys for putting up with me. I was late to, twice, I think, on this. I, thank you guys both. This was so much fun. But we expect nothing uh, less of Spielberg. I'm Spielberg. I mean, the Spielbergian, I, the Spielbergian eager has to get in the way somehow. You know, so. so, Chris, what is happening with you lately, sir? Not a whole lot. Just not going to the movies, not seeing new movies, but talking about movies on the Culture Cast, which you can find over at WeirdingWayMedia.com, along with the uh, aforementioned reading of The Lost Ark on the uh, projection booth RSS feed, or plenty of other things. Like Andy and I did an episode on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas a couple months back, which was a a fun one. So that's where you can uh, find all the things that I work on, WeirdingWayMedia.com. And Andy, you always give me a run for my money when it comes to being busy. What is going on with you these days? So I'll just cut it down to three books. I've got two that just came out and one that's coming out. The two that just came out, one is a novel, which is a sequel to my novel, Layla's Score, which is called Layla's Gone. But movie-wise, I just had the book on Watermelon Man come out. It's called Melvin Van Peebles' Watermelon Man. And the other thing is I have the oral history of the room finally coming out in December. Very proud of both of those. Beyond that, I've got a couple books in the future that I'm working on for applause books, gay. And if I live long enough, they will get finished and it will be great times for all of us. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like Chris. They are all available on WeirdingWayMedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit Patreon.com slash Projection Booth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Thank you.